So welcome to the Edu Purist podcast. Today we have two guests. We have Ms. Bird Robinson. She's the principal of Belmont Charter High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we have Dr. Chatton. She is the uh, founding director of the Susie King Taylor Community School located in Savannah, Georgia. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having us. No problem. All right, so we'll jump right in. Today, we're going to talk about summer learning loss. So if you guys can just kind of shut your eyes and remember summer the way it was when you were growing up and talk to the audience about that. So when I was growing up, I grew up in upstate New York in a pretty affluent community. And so summer school, summer learning was at school really just for students who had failed the class or who needed to make up a class for regents or something like that. So in my home, we had summer learning directed by my parents and that was really just um, enrichment. So we did a lot of learning about black history, African-American history, Caribbean history, a lot of reading and reports and a lot of Bible studies. And then sometimes if we got our work done, we could Play in the pool. Nice, that's awesome. <laughs> Dr. Chad. Yeah, my summers were a little different. Um, I grew up in a single parent household and mom was always at work, but she made sure our summer days were full. Um, I always attended either a day camp or a, an academic enrichment program. Um, and we always managed to find the free ones. So I remember being seven and started at the National Youth and Sports Program, which was being held at Temple University during the summers. And in the mornings, you would do two um, sports. Then I did badminton and jump rope. Don't judge me. And then in the <laughs> afternoon, it was a science and math program. Um, and so it definitely helped to prevent any loss because those were my two weakest areas growing up. Um, and so I just remember those being my summers all the way until it was time for me to go to work. And then as a 14, 15 year old who was starting out in the workforce, my summer jobs are always teaching at these type of programs. So I don't really know what a carefree summer looks like. So I do. I grew up in Covington, Louisiana. And so at daybreak, we were outside playing and didn't have to be back inside till daylight ended. And so it was absolutely no learning that occurred during the summer. I don't know why or how I am where I'm at now based off of my summers, but they were pretty carefree. And um, and I know nowadays our kids just can't survive with carefree summer. So we, right. we definitely need to talk about this. All right. So. One of you is in high school and then one of you is in, 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 um, in K to five, but I'm pretty clear that both of you can relate to the fact that our kids come to school in kindergarten, probably not on grade level. You guys want to talk about that? Yeah, it's so a I little can... different. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. And I, you know, I grew up in Philly and pre-K was just not a mandatory thing. If you manage to get into a Head Start, that's great. Here in Georgia, pre-K is lottery lottery funded. And for the most part, every kid who can get into a pre-K program gets in for free. Um, and so it starts early. And most of our kids come to us in kindergarten already having a good um, acquisition of their primary skills. However, there is 
some loss that happens over summer. And as you all know, that's pretty much um, socioeconomically linked. Um, and basically those who know more and have more social capital and access to resources um, are able to get, you know, that summer assistance. And we have summer programs here like Horizons. Um, that's an academic summer program that low income and free and reduced lunch students can can attend for free. So um, I don't know. I, it's important for kids to come in our kindergarten kids usually come in a halfway mix. Half of them are on grade level or ready for kindergarten. Half of them have never sat in a classroom. And honestly, the half that have never sat in a classroom are of the higher income brackets. And that's because they had a stay-at-home mom who could stay home with them through the four-year-old age. Gotcha. So I actually work at a pre-K through 12 charter network. So oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, my, my organization started with <laughs> a pre-K. I'm the founding principal of the high school, which opened two years ago. And so in the community that my school serves, West Philadelphia, it's a neighborhood called The Bottom. The founder found that there was a real need. We started with kindergarten. He saw there was a real need for an extensive pre-K program because kids were coming in. They didn't know basic letters, basic numbers. Um, just how to like sit and just sit in a kindergarten classroom. And so he started the pre-K, which is a very um, intense program. It's very much focused on reading and writing. In fact, my daughter went there last year for pre-K three to make sure that the students had a good foundation to start kindergarten. And so as the years progressed, you know, he added a middle school and the high school where I'm at is now the culmination of that community schools program with the hope that as we get students in pre-K kindergarten, they will be on level. So by the time they get to me, there are not ninth and 10th graders that are reading and doing math at a fourth and fifth grade level. It's painful to see that. And you, yeah. you just said something that really resonated for me as a school leader. Like my daughter and my son both attended my school and I, I I listen more when people have their own kids in their schools. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah. This year, 50% um, of our staff, including myself, will have kids at the school and including board members. So it is going to be a really, um, I think, intense year just because there's so many stakeholders who have dual stakes in the success of the school. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was no. it was just critical for me, you know, several of our staff members also have their their students in our pre-K kindergarten. I even have now kids in my high school that are, you know, students mm -hmm. of teachers and such. And it definitely it definitely plays a a different role, you know, because of the stakeholders and you you want to make sure you have the buy-in of those parents, but you also want to make sure that um, you're not catering or coddling to those parents as well. No, understood. This is definitely a slippery slope. So black and brown kids, you know, let's let's jump in, right? They come in behind the eight ball. Like all the research says that they come in behind the eight ball in terms of when they come into kindergarten, right? Like how can we use, how can we use summers to be more academic uh, to kind of put them in front? Like what can, what are some things we can do? 
uh, as a school director, one of my uh, primary roles that I take very seriously is going out and finding those resources for parents. So um, prior to becoming a school administrator and even prior to becoming a classroom teacher, I was a director of uh, Summerbridge of Greater Philadelphia, which turned into the Breakthrough Collaborative of Philadelphia. And actually, my region was West Philadelphia. So all the schools um, out in that area is where our catchment was. But there, there are programs like that in almost every major city. And you would be surprised how many parents don't know about them and that they are um, free resources for continued summer learning. And they, they balance out um, academics and entertainment, right? So kids get to go on field trips. They do, get to do all the summer camp stuff, but they also get to learn. And so one of my roles and how I help our, our black and brown kids is making sure that I find those resources and I help parents apply for them and I get them the free and reduced lunch letters that they need to qualify um, so that our kids don't miss those opportunities. That's really great. And that something re really resonated with me, you know, just reaching out to the parents and letting them know how important summer learning is because a lot of parents, you know, they've had you know, experience in summer where summer was about like fun and they don't realize how important it is for, you know, their their children to have a really structured summer with fun included and just building those relationships with parents to help them see that, you know, summer can be a time for fun, but also it's important to be a time for learning to help them make the gains they need to make so they can be successful in life. And I think that's what every parent wants to see their children doing better than they did. So, so, so I'm, I'm gonna put you guys in a hypothetical situation, right? So, at the end of at the end of second grade, at the end of second grade, you're supposed to be reading Fontes and Pinnell level M or N, instructional N, right? So, mm -hmm. you got all your first graders at the end of the first grade that are going home on an N, but then only half of them come back on that N or above. But then you got kids that are black and brown that are like on GH, how do you address and assess that kind of situation? One of the things we do at our school to help uh, lessen the impact of that is looping. Um, so our teachers loop with their kids from the year before. So they know before they leave where kids are. Um, and if there's a summer slide that happens, then they'll be able to catch that right at the beginning of the year. Um, and then sort of, um, make sure that the reading coach is, is linked in on that. But I think one of the simplest things that any school can do is, you know, sending home summer reading um, lessons, summer reading requirements with the books, because you can't just say, read these books and expect for people to have access to books or even to the library. Um, and so making that activity fun for kids and giving parents a heads up that that's coming home can help decrease that um, impact when they get back in the fall. One of the things that we do is we, our school is open 300 and pretty much 60 days a year. So there is the opportunity for students to come for summer camp and summer learning and have lunch, have breakfast, even have dinner in an extended program. And so parents take advantage of that. And we kind of work with parents during the year to let them know about this opportunity and how it's a safe place for your kids to be. You know, you don't have to worry about childcare. It's covered by, you know, grants and, and such. 
So take advantage of this program. And the majority of the parents in the elementary school, the pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they do that. So question for you, Ms. Bird Robinson, uh, do, do, the, do the teachers eat for free during these the, programs? The teachers don't eat for free. Oh, I mean, I man. Guess man, that would be a good recruiting employee yeah. right there, man. You can be down there if I can eat for free. Cheese steaks and whatnot, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so both of you are mothers, right? And so what, what kind of things are you doing with your own kids over the summer to kind of make sure that they're not experiencing summer learning loss? Yeah, so my kids are, they go to summer camp, but they will also be doing um, an intensive reading program through Rutgers University in my area. So that's what my kids will be doing. And my school-age child is at um, a summer enrichment program. And the other one's in daycare, and she'll be there all summer. Nice. Okay. So summer learning loss is real. How do we get our parents to take it more serious? You got to start building relationships from the first day of school. Like, let, like I'm big on parent relationships. That's like my whole thing. Parents are our partners. And so just throughout the year, um, keeping them abreast on what their student is doing, you know, how their student is learning, where their areas of growth are, um, sending home resources, having lots of meetings and letting them know of different opportunities that can help or support their child's learning. And just from day one, building that relationship and that trust, um, because then they believe that you have their, their child's best interest in heart, at heart, and they'll be more open to summer opportunities and other things to give their child the education that they deserve. Yeah, and again, I think for me, I've never found a parent, especially one with limited means, who didn't want somewhere for their child to go for the summer. Um, it was just a matter of knowing the resources that were out there and having access to those resources. So I, I for me, it's not making them take it more seriously. Um, it is actually just helping them to be able to get into the programs that usually have very selective entrances or limited spots. And I will say that our school is unique in that we are 60% free and reduced lunch, but that other 40% is um, basically white affluent. And so what I get is pushback from the other population that, um, you know, kids just need to be kids and play during the summer and they need to be able to be free and, and run through the grass. And actually our, our school is sort of based in that philosophy and that premise. We don't give homework. Um, we believe that our students have been there for eight hours. We know everything that they've learned. When they go home, they need to have the other side of that coin, which is freedom. And that's a privileged stance to take, right? So it's really about how do we give that philosophy and bring that to a population of people who have not experienced that in their own childhood? And then how do you um, impress the importance of, no, it's not just go home and play the video game, but go home and read a book or play a family board game or take a hike. Um, so that's where we, we pick our different struggles. But um, just to bring it back to your question, if it's not in our school, it's not um, parents who don't want kids to have something to do during the summer. They just don't know where those resources are. Well, God bless you in your school because my kids <laughs> are getting homework <laughs> every day. <laughs> 
matter of fact, on the days that don't exist, we're giving them homework. Right. Because our kids yeah. come in in such a disposition to where we can't take that play approach. We can't do that. So I'm right. not playing around with my eyes. So last question. What advice would you give to your younger self about utilizing the summer months to make academic gains? Don't all jump in on that question. <laughs> I think I know. I me, think I think for me, I complained a lot about like what we did in the summer, and so looking back at my younger self, what my parents did—they really set me up for success. And so I would tell my younger self, "Just chill, <laughs> Genevieve. Just chill. Your parents know what's right." They're doing what's right. This is all going to work out. Just just be still and do what they need you to do and want you to do. Yeah, and I think for me, I always enjoyed the rigor that came with those type of programs. I never um, valued downtime. And actually, I would tell my younger self that to appreciate the silence and appreciate being bored and not having something to do and not always needing to read a book because now as an adult, I don't have a very healthy work-life balance because I still have that same energy of I need to do, I need to go, I need to multitask. If I'm sitting still, something's not right. Um, so I do think that there is a healthy mm-hmm. balance of, of rigor and self-care that has to happen. And we have to start that practice young with our kids um, because more is not always better. All right, we gotta. I gotta bring you guys back on, and we gotta have a a different episode about work life balance because I struggle with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, final thoughts on summer learning loss. I think there needs think- to be more grants and funding out there for every school who wishes to offer a summer program students to be able to do so. Because even though we take a different approach than most schools, I still would personally want to be able to offer um, something at our location. Um, and we simply can't because we, we pull from the entire county. So transportation alone is an obstacle. Um, and then being able to, to fund those programs by paying teachers or keeping the facilities open. Um, we're just in our, first, our second year of operations. So you know, we don't have the money to do that at this time. Um, but I think if the federal government wants to take a priority or make that a priority, then we could stop the summer slide for a lot of students. I think, as I think about my my network, um, my last thought would be to make sure that we are including the 21st century learning skills and that even for... I look at my high school kids, a lot of my kids, they really want to go into trades and, you know, be like plumbers, electricians, things like that. So thinking about ways to incorporate those career and technical education skills in summer, especially for older kids. I mean, we could do an episode on that alone because most most kids that are coming out with those skills are the kids that are making more money than college graduates and right. they don't have the loans to have to contend with. Right, exactly. exactly. So <laughs> that might definitely be a good episode as well. So ladies, thank you so much for being guests on the Edu Purist podcast. 
where we look for the truth in education and we put it on front street. No pun intended for you Philly folks. <laughs> <laughs> put it on front street.